How do I know what I think until I see what I say? I'm your host, Jacob Goronsky, and welcome to From the Green Notebook, where we create leaders one podcast at a time. So if you don't feel like reading a blog today, then sit back and listen as we discuss some of the most important topics and talk with some of the most innovative leaders of today. So please subscribe and make sure you listen to these exclusive episodes. Today's episode is sponsored by Emblem Athletic, the best option out there for keeping your unit looking amazing with custom shirts, hoodies, and other gear. They're a veteran-owned business that specializes in making it easy for you. And if you've ever ordered unit gear, you know how difficult it can be. Emblem knows you have better things to do than design gear, collect money, and worst of all, sort through a bunch of shirts. Emblem takes care of everything, including, get this, free shipping worldwide. When it comes to something like a deployment shirt, you know you're going to have this for the rest of your life. So trust Emblem to deliver the best, guaranteed. Visit www.emblemathletic.com to get started with a free online store today. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're listening from, and welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. We have another amazing episode for you this week as Joe and I sit down with musician Wesley Schultz, and we revisit some of the important topics that we've covered in past discussions. Wesley also talks about the importance of remaining true to yourself, the importance of knowing your strengths, and also how to use those strengths to your advantage. He talks about relationships with his, his band members, with his family members, and how he deals with them and some of the similarities that he's identified between touring in a band and also being in the military. And in this episode, he really gets personal about how addiction has affected his life. Some of the things he's done to deal with it, some of the things he's done to try to help, and ultimately realizing there's just not much that can be done to help somebody that doesn't want to help themselves. So in this episode, there's a lot of talk about authenticity as well. And since we started this, Joe and I have talked about the importance of being authentic and have discussed how much of our personal lives we actually want to share with From the Green Notebook. And this weekend, we received an amazing message from a Marine stationed in Hawaii. And it was extremely humbling to read the message and read the impact that we've had on this person. And not that we needed one, but it was definitely a reminder of why we started this and why we continue to do it. So in the future, if any other listeners want to share their opinion, give feedback, or just hit us up about the shows, feel free to reach out to myself at JSKI1310, that's JSKI1310 on Twitter, or Joe at JBYERLY81, that's JBYERLY81. We really appreciate your continued support, and we'd be happy to discuss any of the topics that we cover on our podcast. So without further ado, please welcome to the show, lead singer from the Lumineers, Wesley Schultz. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. Thank you so much again for joining us. And uh, maybe you could just start a little bit by telling us uh, about yourself, you know, as much or as little as you want to share with our listeners. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be as open as, uh, as I can. As far as who I am, I'm, I'm a musician. I've been playing music since I was 16, so 37, whatever that makes it. And I'm in a band called the Lumineers. My uh, sister is married to a, a Green Beret. So peripherally, I guess you could say I've I've seen how their life is and what they've been through as a family and had a lot of conversations with 
my brother-in-law and I've learned a lot about leadership within those conversations. And I'm really curious about that with respect to a touring band and basically being away from home and our families a lot and, and the group dynamic and just leadership as a whole has been really a very complex thing to try to understand. So my conversations with John, I've, I've always really valued and learned a lot from them. I figure if you're going to try to learn, learn from someone who's way better at it than you and is going through more difficult circumstances. So it's been a really great learning experience. And uh, I think that's how it kind of brought us together in this conversation. But, you know, mostly I just, I'm talking to you from my studio. I was just writing before we got on here. And generally I'm either writing or touring. And, uh, and I also have a family. I have a wife and a son. That's a little brief synopsis of who I am. A lot more writing lately than touring, obviously. Yes, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, Wesley, I- I'm also learning a lot from, I've learned a lot from John over the years. He's, a, he's an amazing leader and he's always somebody who I can go to and ask questions and learn a lot from his answers. You mentioned touring in your introduction and I know you've done a lot of touring over the years. You spent a lot of time away from your family. You've, you spent a lot of time with the same folks every day. So could you just talk a little bit about what that's like and how you manage the relationships and manage conflict when you're on the road all the time with the same people? I'm sure for anybody who goes away from home in any capacity, there's no simple way to sum it up. For us, to give you a backstory, I grew up in New Jersey and my songwriting partner grew up a mile away from me. His name's Jeremiah Freights. He was about a mile away we started writing and we've been writing together ever since about 16 years later. That started out in 2005. So for about, I want to say seven years, we did everything in sort of anonymity. We were playing a lot of clubs in New York and in New Jersey, coffee shops, clubs, people's living rooms. And then all of a sudden we moved to Denver of all places and left New York and things took off. And then we started really touring. You know, we had never really toured before that. We'd only gone up and down the East Coast a little bit. So the first tour we did was a little over 30 days. We went from Denver to the West Coast. So we stopped in New Mexico, but then went straight out to LA and then went all the way up the West Coast, back through the Midwest, all the way to the East Coast, and then back to Denver. That was our version of uh, Baptism by Fire, where you have to work together to survive and make it work or else people are going to quit. People are not going to have good shows. People are going to want to go home. So, and as things progress, and now we're in buses, and sometimes in the states we play arenas. You have different circumstances, but my tour manager likes to call it hedonistic adaptation. It's this uh, this phenomenon where as, as things get better, you just totally lose perspective on how much better they got because time has passed and you adapt. And so, if you're used to getting, in our case you know, a bottle of wine backstage. And then all of a sudden it's not there one night. You're like, where the hell's my bottle? It, it's like, you're just become a brat basically. So <laughs> you're, you're fighting that you're trying to get along with one another and really value each other. But basically the short way of putting the story is I think the challenge that I'm trying to understand about all this is I think I spent the first, so I've been touring now really hitting it hard for like eight years. And that's just the start of a career, you know, in music. And um, I probably spent five or six of those years surviving. And then the other two or three having a life. I didn't 
All I was doing was getting by day to day for those five to six, seven years. My wife made me a, a Christmas present of a calendar of 2013. And so that year we got engaged and that year we went on SNL and went on the Grammys and that year we toured 300 days and it was just, she gave it to me for Christmas and I almost got nauseous looking at it. That was how I described the first part of this whole touring cycle life. Um, and then you sort of adapt hopefully and get better at it and learn how to get what you need to be living and not just surviving. But that's a, that's a real big challenge of it. I think in the beginning is that you get a little lost in the machinery of it. You just a cog in the wheel. So Wesley, at the beginning, you said you were a musician. This is my second podcast interviewing a musician. So I'm kind of an expert on this. So, um, I just, I've listened to a lot of your stuff and I would almost say that you are a fantastic storyteller who is really good at music as well. I mean, your stuff is, is pretty incredible. The way that you tell a story and the way that your music, you know, comes out. And I really enjoy that. I know there's people who just make music and they make a beat and you dance to it or you really love it, but you know, the Bob Dylan's and the Cat Stevens, you know, the world that can tell a story through their music, I think is really special. I put you in that category. My first question for you is, when did you know to leave New York? You talked about you struggled in New York. I lived on the Upper East Side for two years, so I know the New York life, and uh, that place will beat you down if you let it. And yeah. you know, it certainly didn't do that to you, but it seemed like you knew it was time to move on and, and you know, go towards something different or go to a different direction. How did you know that? Well, I think it's like a relationship, right? First of all, thank you for those kind words. It was really, it's really amazing to be, you know, even mentioned in the same paragraph or anything like with those heroes of mine that you mentioned, Cat Stevens and Bob Dylan. And I do feel like music is a, is merely for me, mostly a vehicle for the stories I want to tell in a lot of ways, but I've grown to start, try to marry the two and have them be hopefully equal partners in it. But back to New York, I was living in Bushwick and I feel like a good way of putting it is that I've ever seen somebody who's in a pretty good relationship, but it's just not that great. And you just stay in it so long. You'd almost be better off if that person was just terrible and you're like, I'm leaving. Right. Well, that's how New York became. I, I sat down with a friend one night. He was my roommate, one of my best friends. He was one of my groomsmen, Maddie. And it was like a Goodwill hunting moment, but I don't think he realized it where he said, you know, that part in Goodwill hunting where, Matt Damon's friend in the movie Ben Affleck's like, if you don't, if you don't leave here, I'm going to fucking kill you. Yeah. If you're, like, you if you're here in 20 years and, and our kids are playing ball together down at Foley field. <laughs> no offense, but I'm going to kill you. Yeah. That's, not a threat. Like that. That's a fact. Yeah. And it felt like he said to me, I'm going to your shows and you guys are doing a good job, but the same eight people are at every show. Like nothing's happening in New York. And I think you just got to, you got to do something. Something's got to change. So it was more about New York just became not feasible. And it was hard because it was like an actor going to LA. I just knew that was the only place I could possibly ever make it in quotes. And so leaving was, didn't feel like waving a white flag of defeat, but it, it felt like we're going to try something different. And my, my mind is telling me that if I go to Buffalo, New York, I'll be better off than New York, New York right now, because it's so expensive to live here. It's so claustrophobic in that way. 
I remember working three jobs and one of the jobs I'm at, this kid comes in and he's, I'm a bartender and he's day drinking. And I'm like, what do you do? And he's like, I'm a musician. And I'm like, what band do you? And he's like, I'm in like six bands. And I'm like, oh, your mommy and daddy pay for everything. That's how this works. So I started to realize that I write songs about that feeling of, of feeling like New York became so full of trust fund backed people in some way, even if it wasn't literally that a lot of people are so set up. Um, there's an old phrase. It's, I think it's, you go to LA to be found, go to New York once you made it and you go to Miami to, to disappear. And it's like, I feel like I hadn't made it. So I didn't have the right to plant roots down in New York. There's just no room for somebody without money. So I felt like I was working at Starbucks. I was working at a Thai restaurant and I was catering. I just remember thinking, man, I'm getting really good at making drinks. This isn't the plan. You know, I don't want to make you a coffee or a cocktail. I want to make you songs. And so I just left. It got so bad that I just moved anywhere. So Denver was just random. I had friends moving there. They said, hey, you can rent this house. You get some like $550 a person, which was steep, but it was about half of what I was paying in Bushwick. And I could have a rehearsal space in that house and my own room and everything. So I was like, I'll take it. And I just left, you know, and I was living, I was kind of just living, literally trying to make a budget because it got so bad. And I remember thinking, man, I can't even like buy a friend a drink or go out. Like I was just, so I wrote a lot of songs in that apartment that I was living in. I wrote ton. I mean, Ho Hey, Life in the City, Slow It Down, Flapper. There's just so many things that like came out of that situation, but it was time to go. You talk about all these experiences and then you, you turned your experiences into songs. How do you do that? I mean, are you, because you're a musician and because you're a writer, is that kind of changed the way that you view the world? Like, are you always walking around with a notepad in the back of your pocket? Well, we do have voice memos now. So my wife probably hates it because I used to carry around a little tape recorder. I used to work for a, a butcher and I would go into the freezer and I'd call my own phone and wait till it hit the voicemail and I'd sing ideas back to myself. <laughs> and every once in a while they'd walk in and be like, I told you to grind that meat. You know, whatever they needed me to do back there because I made the burger patties. I think a big part of songwriting is like, there's this fork in the road. It's a weird example, but whenever I go into Guitar Center, I feel like I would just want to leave immediately. There's people just shredding guitars. If you ever hear Coheed and Cambria, it's like shredding just, and it's incredible technically, but there's nothing about that that inspires me. I wanted to write good songs and I, that's not the place you'd hear that. It's more subtle. I think the best songs are like the best movies where you you have to come from a place of you have to be rooted in some genuine event or some person's experience. It doesn't have to be your own, but you have to really get inside the head of someone else if it's not your own and give it that credibility and like flesh the story out. So I think a lot of it is trying to not be clever and trying not to be cool, just trying to say something honest. And it also stems a lot from, I was raised by a psychologist. I was going to be a psychologist. And I think music became a way of telling stories with a lot of empathy. I think you need empathy to write movies and songs and everything else. And I think if you look at the cavemen, they told stories on the walls with their art. It's as old as time. You know, I think to lead people, when I talk to John, it's like, you don't really get there by facts and statistics. You get there by telling your story. 
a lot of music can fall flat to a listener because the person maybe doesn't know what they're trying to say and they maybe don't want to put it out there. So I think a big part of music is just, it's A, it's being around for the idea, i.e. just being naturally gravitating and obsessed with it. But then the other part is trying to, to open up and be vulnerable. So you're actually saying something and it's not just disposable sort of plastic sounding. I don't know if that makes sense, like in your guys' world, but I think it would. Wesley, that makes so much sense. There's so many things I, I would want to say on that because you hit some of the major themes that we hit in this podcast about empathy. And we talked to our guest, Shannon Huffman Polson a couple of weeks ago, and she talked about the importance of knowing your story. You, you brought that up. But I kind of want to focus on vulnerability right now because that's another theme that Joe and I hit on that when you write, you're very vulnerable, whether you write music or whether you write blogs. And I joked to Joe, the first episode that we released to this podcast, I laid down to go to bed and I just had this mini anxiety. And I'm like, I just put this out there for the whole world to see. Now, granted, the whole world's not listening to it, <laughs> but it's out there. And I listened to your recent album that you just released, Vignettes, such a great album. And I used to sing Operator to my, my daughter when she was a, a little baby. And if I could sing as well as you, I think I would have slept a lot better and everyone in the house would have slept better. <laughs> that version of that song was, was amazing. And the first notes that I heard from the piano, I was like, oh, this is going to be good. That album, especially, I wanted to ask you about your vulnerability because you're doing a solo album, which I imagine has got to feel a little vulnerable. You're covering other people's songs, which again, that to me, and of course, correct me if I'm wrong, is even more, a little more added pressure. And then on top of that, that album was all about your vocals. It was just some piano and some guitar. But I mean, that, all of those songs really focused on, on your talent with, um, with your voice. So could you just cover that? I, I didn't mean to make that question really long, but could you just talk about the oh. vulnerability of that album a little bit? No, it's great. It's a great question. I think, yeah, it's like there's this line. I grew up listening to Leonard Cohen. For those people out there aren't super familiar with him, he wrote Alleluia. Um, which has been covered more than almost any other song. So he's he's this master songwriter, but he, he has one line in one of his songs where he says, I was born with the golden voice. And he's kind of saying it like in jest, making fun of himself. I've always felt like a kin or kindred with Tom Petty or even Bob Dylan in the sense of Leonard Cohen in the sense of I would never win a talent contest about singing ever. I wouldn't even make it past the first round on American Idol. But in a way, what I started to realize was that your greatest weakness is actually can be flipped on its head to become your strength. So for me, being vulnerable and singing only the way I could, now you're an original. No one sounds like you. People believe that. I like the idea that the truth sounds different. When I go see Broadway shows, which isn't very often, I don't generally like that because it's protected singing comes from like an opera standpoint. And it's almost like if a politician speaks, that reminds me of that. Whereas when you hear someone real speak in a real way, it's the same as a real singer expressing themselves. So, I mean, Otis Redding came on last night, my wife and I were watching something and I was like, man, this guy's the greatest singer. I don't know if you're familiar, but anything he sings, he could sing the phone book and it would, it would move you. Anything, I mean, anything he's ever sung, I'm like floored. I heard his demos and they're, they're insane. So I realized for me, the key was being vulnerable. And when I listen to, I have a, we can see each other, but the listeners won't be able to, but I have like an old CD that 
I made for my dad. It's called Wes, his greatest hits, which at 15, I think I made this, but it has all these covers. So it has like Dave Matthews band, Tom Petty, Lyle Lovett. When I listen back to this, I cringe a lot. The moments when I don't cringe is when I hear my real self come out. You know, this is when I was first starting out and I was trying to sound sometimes like to please other people. I guess with singing and trying to be vulnerable, a big, a big aspect of that is who you'd sound like if no one was listening, if that makes sense. That was what was heartening about listening to these old songs. That is, that the CD I showed you is 20 years old. There are actual moments where I'm being myself, but there's way more where I'm not. And that's what's hard to listen to. And that's, I wish I knew that a while back. It takes a while to learn that for me. It did for me, at least. It's kind of like when you're a kid and you're trying to impress that girl in middle school. If you would have just been yourself, you would have crushed it. Sometimes you're trying to be cool or put on a front. So it's very much like singing. So what about vignettes? Was that yourself? Was that a better version of that CD you made 15 or 20 years ago? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was paying homage to covering songs because those are things that taught, those are songs that an artist that taught me how to write songs. And I felt like it was a really honest, it was a really honest look at how I sing, like how I'd sound in the shower or how I'd sound like by myself on the couch. You know, that was what I was focusing on every time in the booth. And we did it really quick. I mean, did it in just four and a half days which is real fast compared to Lumineers albums where everything is very poured over and detail oriented. This was like limited in its arrangement, but it was also just fly by the seat of your pants. I would ride my motorcycle to the studio and not know sometimes what song we were going to record. I just knew we were going to record, which is a brand new idea. And some of these songs I didn't even really know. Downtown Train, I had heard it like the night before. And I was like, that's a great song. I don't know how I never heard that. Let's do that one. Tom Waits or Rod Stewart version? I was played all of them, but the first ones our producer Simon showed me was the Rod Stewart version. And then I actually really liked the Tom Waits version better. And there's an album called Closing Time by Tom Waits that's, he kind of sings like a normal person. And then he turns into some alien for the rest of his <laughs> career. <laughs> and if you like that, it works. And for me, it's taken a long time to get through to the other side of that. But I somehow, he really won me over. He wrote it, but I just mean his version of it, uh, I like the best. And I think Bob Seger also covered it. We listened to that. That's some good company, but there's a reason why they're covering it. It's like an amazing song. So it was, it was good to do it in a way where you didn't really know what you were doing. It gave it a little more honesty. Wesley, you know, you've talked about being a musician and writing songs for, you know, over 20 years now. And the yourself and the band, the Lumineers, has just exploded in the last decade. How have you balanced the passion you have for music, the passion you have for writing with being in a band and, and all those requirements that come along with that? Well, for us, it's really easy in a way because to have boundaries around that because we've never relied on other people to songwrite. It's just been me and Jer since uh, 16 years ago now. We just do it in house. We, we I always think of us as like this little food cart that got a Michelin star or something where we, we don't really belong in a lot of these environments sort of on paper, but somehow it worked out to be playing arenas just doesn't even make sense. Not this time, but the last time, the first time we ever entered arenas, they were like, so who are you opening for? And we're like, no, it's us. We're 
we're playing Madison Square Garden two times, motherfucker. Like it was just like <laughs> it's just a crazy thing, but it gives me hope in the sense of songwriting can win the day, and it doesn't have to be only about uh, cult of personality. But a big part of why we've been able to be successful at boundaries around songwriting and is because when I say that, I mean like not being forced to write something and put it out unless we felt good about it is because we, we have these one record deals where it's just like from the first record and the second and the third and every one, we just sign a one record deal. That means, you know, who you're working with then, and we're all motivated to do a good job. And at the end of the day, when we go to make the next one, we decide if we want to work together again. It's a rare thing in this industry to, on our first album, when it was done, no one said like, well, you signed up on this contract. So the next one has to come out of this date. So there was like a four year separation between the first and second album coming out because we had been touring for three years. And then it took a year to put out a record, like to write and put out a record. So some artists get trapped a little bit in bad contracts and they really sort of force artists to do things against their will. And I feel very lucky that it's almost like, so when I talk to John, my brother-in-law, people meet him and they go, oh, it's a Green Beret. Like, it's just, there's like a finality to that. Like, it, it means something very specific. But they don't remember that he went to Norwich Military Academy for a year because he didn't get into West Point the first try. And then they don't know that he went to try to get into Ranger School and got denied and asked questions and figured they made a clerical error and got in late. And then he tried to get into Special Forces that didn't work out the first try. So he's like the guy who keeps knocking. And I feel like for us, we failed so long that those disadvantages became our advantages. So I remember John telling me that first night at Norwich Military Academy, they wake you up in the middle of the night and they make you do a bunch of push-ups and go outside in the cold or whatever they make you do. And there were guys like freaking out and he was a little freaked out. But then he goes to West Point and they sort of do this similar thing and he's already experienced it. And he's ready for it. It's like this advantage, even though he just spent a year, everybody would say, oh, that must have sucked. Well, it did at the time, but it prepared you for what was next. And I feel like with us, I mean, every experience, I remember playing, we played so many people's living rooms, so many people's just living rooms with no amps that we would go into offices and then we'd go and I remember playing like this Clive Davis party where like right in front of me is like Puff Daddy and all of these people that I just seen on TV and I like stopped the song mid song. And I was like, I need people to stand up. I need something. I need some energy. And it was like, I would have never done that had I not busked on the streets and just asked things of an audience. If I was just like, you know, through some machinery that made us famous, it was like, we were just nothing but nothing but obscurity and failure. And then once it hit, I felt like all those experiences, they shape and help you or even to like open for you too. We opened for so many bands that we knew how to open for a band. We knew our role. It wasn't about us, but we could win the crowd almost like you got your 10 minutes, in this case, 45, and then you're off. So I think a lot of that, I, I just think there's such a value to failure. You're, you're just an apprentice to this thing. And if you're willing to do it for a long time, every one of those supposed failures is a huge advantage as you progress. I was going to hit that point exactly. And I've read way too many Eckhart Tolle and self-help books and stuff. I don't think they're failures at all. I think they are. Those are the situations that just create who you are. As you said, they make you the person that you are. And if you don't have those, you know, it's, it's said that when you do fail, you're not going to know how to handle it because you've been successful for your, for so much of your life that failure really 
when you get to that that point, it really affects you more so than if you've had those experiences. Yeah, and I and you talked about you know you talked about your voice too, and and I think back to the early articles and blog posts that I wrote that nobody read, but it was in that <laughs> process that that I found my voice, and then you know here we are, you know seven years later, me and Jacob sitting here talking to you, but it, it's a result of learning from those failures. So I love that you made that point, Wesley. Yeah. I think you have to be open to it and it's credit to you that you're open to it. It's like an opportunity. I feel like it's weird. You look at like football, Tom Brady is physically not some, someone to necessarily marvel at when you compare him to so many other people that have come before him that are freaks of nature. Like they can jump over cars and like lift anything and, outrun anyone. He was the least likely to be that good, but he had this chip on his shoulder. He had this underdog mentality. I'm going to outwork you. There's things like that all over in music. David Gilmore, he's in Pink Floyd and he, you know, he writes these like iconic solos, you know, that you can hum. You know, like there's these things that you remember that he did and you hear interviews with him and he's like, well, I knew I was never going to be as technically fast or just absurd at the guitar as like a Clapton or Jimi Hendrix. So I knew I had to sort of develop melodic solos for me to have a voice and for me to have a spot. I feel like with me, I always knew, like I mentioned earlier, I was never going to win a talent competition in that way, but I knew I enjoyed writing. And if I could write a good song that someone else in a way wished they wrote, that's how I would find my spot. It's, it's not, I always joke that if I went to an open mic, someone would go like, man, that kind of sounds like the Lumineers guy. It wouldn't really be this Aretha Franklin, like, is, or Adele, like, who is that? It's just, it's about the craft and it's about the songs. And we kind of, as a band and as a trying to be an egoless enterprise, you know, pretty much stand behind that, behind the music. We serve the music. I remember growing up and, I don't know if you had this, but I, I did the Columbia house thing where you like get a hundred CDs for five bucks or something. And I'd like always get, I'd out. always get in trouble for not paying those. Yeah, I was gonna say, <laughs> yeah. That's your first lesson about debt and uh, yeah. credit. Somehow I followed, followed the fine print and didn't get fine. Like you know, didn't get screwed over, but Steve Miller band was one of the CDs I got. And I remember thinking like, I don't know what this guy looks like. I don't know anything about him, but I love this music. I felt like we were the, uh, like, folk rock version of that where like I could just go out and walk in the streets, even outside of a venue we were playing. And it was generally like no one even, they didn't care about that. They had a relationship with the music. That's how I preferred it, you know? So I don't know if that makes any sense relative to the question. I feel like I got off on a tangent, but. No, that's, that's actually what we love is those, uh, just the conversations and stories. So appreciate that. The, the only thing I do have to say is I grew up in Massachusetts, so I've seen Tom Brady jump over cars. He can do it. <laughs> oh man. No, I, I'm just surprised that if you think about the people that have played that position, that he's going to be one of the greatest of all time or one of the greatest. And if you look at where he was drafted and his tape, even it's not how it was supposed to be drawn up. No, it's it's the intangibles that you can't see. And I think, you know, to your point with your, with your music, I think one of the, in my opinion, again, uh, after two episodes, expert <laughs> musicians, you guys are really good live as well. I think that's important for a band, 
you know, some bands you hear them do studio albums and then they go on the road and they play and they're just not very good. And, you know, your music lends to a live audience in, in a sense, or lends to playing to a live audience. And I think that, you know, goes to what you're saying, use your strengths of, of what you can do. But I mean, I think your voice is amazing, but so I don't know what you're saying, but you know, I, I understand it, but conceptually I'm like, mm, I just listened to that album last night and it sounded pretty good. There's a little more confidence after making a few records and I've actually gotten, I got sort of hurt singing and then I was trained at how to even warm up and how to cool down and how to, how to sing certain vowels the right way where I was really hurting myself. I had to go on this vocal rest and all this stuff. So I felt like I came out of that way stronger and I can sing more consistently and sing better in a way. So making this record, I think there was more confidence going in that this won't be everyone's cup of tea, but for those that will, it will hit them hard. My favorite singers are like that. I'm not saying I don't have any confidence in that way, but it's more like, I think I know where my strengths lie. And I try to feel like I've very much improved in that category. But I also knew that it was never going to carry us the way that just having a, a great song could. So you really have to work on the thing that's going to really give you those wings, you know, to like excel or set yourself apart or find your voice, whatever that is. It's I think some people who are that talented, let's say like an Eddie Vedder, he can quite literally, you could put lyrics in front of him you've never seen and it would sound like he meant it his whole life. I admire that so much, but... At the same time, I know I can't do that. And so I'm going to have to come up with a better song to keep pace uh, with anybody that I admire. And so you got to be careful because people will clap no matter what. At some point, you have to know that what you're doing is still resonating because in the beginning, you have an open mic and an honest reaction from fans, from people who aren't fans, rather. So you go to play an open mic. There's no reaction. You know, that song probably needs some work. But now we can play something and they'll just clap because they're fans of of our band in general and you want to make sure that the knife is still sharp everything is still resonating in that way that it needs to because i think that's a big fear is losing touch with what you're doing and then just mailing it in i've seen some really capable bands that it seems like you go see them a few years later and you're like well this album wasn't that good and they don't really seem very into this what what happened how do you stay meshed and connected and driving forward as a band on stage and not just showing up. Today's episode is also sponsored by veteran-owned Alpha Coffee Company. Their premium 100% Arabica coffee is freshly roasted for a bold, delicious flavor. Alpha Coffee supports veteran charities and has donated over 19,000 bags of coffee to deployed troops. They also offer a combinable 10% military discount and 10% off for subscriptions. Taste the Alpha difference. Purchase their coffee today from their online store or via Amazon Prime. So how do you balance that, Wesley? Because you're still trying to, to grow yourself as an artist and be the best musician you can be, but, but you're also a husband and a father. So how do you, how do you balance, balance those two right now? Or is it, are there any lessons you've learned that you could share with folks in the military who are, who are struggling with, with that same, trying to find that same type of balance? Well, one is uh, got to find a gypsy, you know, <laughs> I truly found like a carnival gypsy worker in a way. She actually spent time in a, in a setting like that for a little while <laughs> on something called the tour de fat, where she spent six months. I think all she ate was cupcakes and beer. And now she's like the mother of one and, and pregnant with another. And 
she's in that domestic lifestyle a little bit, but she comes out on the road. Like our son took his first steps in Japan and that we had just been in Australia and it's a weird lifestyle and she embraces it. You just don't know. I mean, it's a, I see my sister and her husband, my sister's name's Rebecca and her husband's John and he gets deployed and he's in actual total real danger. I'm just out on the road. So it's completely different, but missing each other. There's some connection in the family, like talking about that a little bit, but I have, I sort of say like, we can't compare those, but we can at least slightly relate. The only thing I'd say is that maybe one of the things I'd say is that I see in my sister and in my own relationship, a willingness to try and not be entitled to a good relationship, but try to work on it. It's never going to be like something that's just, you sit back and it's all good. You have to try and you have to be willing to work. And in our case, I've been to therapy with the band. I've been to therapy with my wife on my own. Um, it's not something I'm doing all, all the time, but I use it as a tool. And I think that to me has been preventative in some ways. It's opened my eyes up to things that I didn't even know mattered to my wife that I now try to do um, and maybe vice versa. So I think that that's, that's maybe a pitfall of spending time apart is when you see each other, you're, you're expected to just be perfect. I just remember coming home. My wife was like, oh, I'm just not used to walking with anyone because she would be like walking at like a half a pace ahead of me. I'd go to hold the door for her and she'd open it for her. Like, I'm trying to open the door. And she's like, oh, I'm just not used to someone doing that. And I'm like, what is that supposed to mean? <laughs> like, but I had been gone two, 300 days a year, certain years. And some of it she was out for, some of it she wasn't. And so the one thing I would say is, yeah, if there's a way to do that. And I've seen John, he puts a huge onus on communication. You know, I got my sister an iPad and he, John's kind of like anti-Apple. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, but this is a pretty dope machine. And he ended up going to one of the most remote posts in Africa. He had it out there and it was working. They could talk through it and keep a little bit connected. And so I think just trying to communicate more about things and yeah, but it's, it's just going to be hard. And I think if people go into it, understanding that it's better than expecting, like, there are moments where I, I feel like I say this, where I'm like, I don't even know why we go camping, you know, when we're home or something. Cause like, there's, someone's upset about something or my wife's like, why do you do that? I'm like, well, cause you just seem miserable. It's like, no, I'm not. But I, I sort of like blow up the argument by just saying, I don't even know why we do that. And that's an example of something I need to sort of work on. Cause when I get off the road, I'm like, I'm entitled to just relax. And my wife's like, I want to have a life though. And so there's this balance that I think must be really hard when you're going through that, what I go through, but on top of that, you've been in danger. You've been in the line of fire. You've been just in around a much different environment than a musician is. Does that resonate with you guys at all? It does. And I love that you said that you have to be deliberate. You can't just expect to have a great relationship. You have to put time, effort, and energy into it. And that's just, you know, a, a lot of us take that for granted, come back and you expect to be able to kick back, relax when you can't. So, and I, I think that's great advice, Wesley. My, yeah. my wife jokes that like there should be an applause button or something. You know, when I walk in the room, like I'm just so used to it off the road. Hi guys. Like, like she's like, you're such a, take out the garbage. You're fine. You're home now. It's, <laughs> we, we know you. Uh, yeah. So I, you know, it's a great point because I, I know when I was with my wife and I deployed for the first time, we had a really difficult time talking and 
we got to the point where she said, I don't want to talk to you every day or every couple of days. I want to talk to you once a week because, you know, I really do think it's harder on the individuals who stay at home because they're picking up the pieces of normal life. And, you know, when you deploy, you get into kind of a rhythm where, hey, this, you don't have to, you know, worry about a lot of the things, paying bills and, and, uh, you know, putting gas in your car. And we used to just butt heads about our conversations. And I think it was just a, a lack of empathy on, on my part about how much she had to do. And I was the one deployed, but it was like, like I said, she was the one holding down uh, the home life. So it really, it's an interesting point that you bring up when you're away, you really have to kind of look at it from, from both uh, points of view. Also like to piggyback off that, I think that there's this thing about being in the band that I could see overlapping with military families or relationships where the outside world and their judgments just can't apply. Whatever works, use that. That's great. And don't, don't worry about judgment and don't judge yourself so harshly. Like if it is that you talk every few days or every week, but that conversation's good, who cares what someone thinks about that? At the same time, make sure you're checking in with yourselves about if it's working. But I totally agree. I mean, there's absurd stuff that goes on in the world. Like I, I'm, I'm a singer. And if I don't sleep, if I don't sleep well, I don't sound the same or I lose my voice, you know, if it happens night after night. So for a while I was like, we were in the same hotel room. If we stayed, if we were in a hotel, then at some point I was like, I think you're really uncomfortable getting up with Lenny, our son, because he's making noise and it's creating tension between you and Lenny. It's creating tension between me and you. So finally we're like, Hey, why don't we just take some of the money we're earning and spend a little more on like an extra room. And I'll just sleep in this room. I'll sleep in this other hotel room. And when we see each other, it's all good. And I bet you people listening would be like, that is so stupid. What a waste of money. What, what a needy drama, like whatever. It works for us. I'm not asking the band to pay for it. I'm paying for it. You know, like just own it. If you can own that, it's great. But it took us a while to get there. And it, it was some serious disagreements leading up to that. And it's been a lot more smooth having our own space to not be imposing on one another or feeling like that. So it's an example of, whatever works. It reminded me of what you said about, you know, once a week or whatever it was speaking to one another, I could see other, you sit down at the mess hall and someone's like, I, I talk to my wife every day. Cause I really love her. And you're like, no, I, I really love my wife too. It's just, I don't need that. Like, that's just not how we work. I think that's fantastic advice for any relationship, not just a husband and a wife, but you know, whatever works for you, uh, who cares what anybody else honestly believes because it is your relationship. And I can tell you I'm a night person and my wife is not. So she goes to bed at 8.30 and I stroll in there sometimes at 12, 12.30 and it wakes her up. And she also is the type of person that can't fall back asleep. So if I wake her up because I lumber myself into bed, then she's upset because she can't go back to sleep. So sometimes I'll just go in the guest room and then just go lay down there and then we both get a, a good night's sleep. You know? So yeah. I can certainly relate to that. My wife's pregnant now, so she's in hypersensitive. She just we call her like she, her name's Brandy, but I call her Wanda when this person comes out. She can't stand if the light's on, if I'm reading. So I try to get a Kindle, but the, the Kindle's too bright or something. So it's like when lights are out, lights are out. And it's, I'm like, I can do this for like, she's like, don't forget, this is only while I'm pregnant. And, uh, and I was like, yeah, this did happen last time too. We got all these arguments about, because I'm a night person and I'm strolling late. And she's like, I couldn't sleep. So you got in and then you had the light on and you're taking your shoes off. and what are you doing? I'm like, all right, can't win. Same conversation. (laughs) 
I think we could do a Lumineers Green Notebook relationship advice podcast. And I think that would probably do better than the one we've got going, Jacob. <laughs> I guarantee you <Yeah>. it would. <laughs> <laughs> I've also found that when this is, I don't know if this is advice or not, but I have found, and I've learned this through my wife that, and it's the same with, le- it actually feeds right into the leadership component of all of this is I always thought being a leader was stoicism and just having all the right answers and, you know, being the strongest. And and it's surprising, but that usually all those behaviors combined tend to close people off. And I think in order to win people over or have them and you get on the same level, you need to be vulnerable and say something that's not flattering about yourself. You know, you need to be open to that. And I've seen it even in our, my own relationship with my wife. It's like, we'll share sometimes when we got in a bad fight, right before our friends walked in for us to go out to dinner. Like, you guys should have heard us. We were like, sorry, there are people upstairs. I don't know if you hear this. <laughs> we can hear it, but it's all right. My brother's living with us too. So we have like two families in this house. Basically like sharing, being vulnerable and saying when you screwed up, saying when it was a really bad day or you just made a huge error. I've seen it open up people around me by me saying something that isn't positive. It's just, it is what happened. And I used to not do that. And I think I alienated a lot of people in the beginning trying to be a leader by thinking I had to be perfect. And perfect just turns off everyone because they know it's false. Yeah, I've been fascinated by that. It's like a huge learning curve. Well, we have eight episodes in our first season that if you ever get uh, bored, you can listen to the rest of them. We talk with some pretty fantastic leaders and some people who offer some really great advice. That's really cool. I will. Last year, you came out with the album Three, and it was a pretty intense album. I'll, I'll tell you, I heard the music before, but I never listened to the short or I didn't watch the short movie um, that was made in conjunction with that. First off, I'd like to just kind of ask... I. When I listened to that, I found myself thinking of like The Who by Tommy. Um, I don't know if it was just the sound or the story or anything like that. Was there any inspiration? Um, were they an inspiration in that at all? That's just a curious question. Well, it's like The Who's Tommy. I, I felt like that was a such a cool, ambitious storytelling record, you know, that became a musical. And it just like told this overarching tale. And I think... It became known, you know, in some ways as a concept record. So in that way, it was influential on a lot of bands, including us. But it was a weird process. We, the album we're talking about, three, our Lumineers album is, um, it basically tells the story of these three generations of this family that is centered around this mother who's an alcoholic. So her son and then her grandson are involved in the story. And it's based on my wife's uh, mother. So the last 10, 11 years, we, we've just been trying to help her dealing with alcoholism and dealing with some of the mental issues, emotional disorders that she's going through. It might be bipolar, it might be dementia, and then it's combining that with alcoholism and being homeless. It's led to a lot of really crazy and sad and absurd situations like we bought her a house, did the sort of rock star thing and bought my mom and her mom a house each. And then we had to evict her from that house because she was destroying herself and the house at the same time. And then she went homeless and then ended up in jail. In last year alone, we found out recently that she was in the emergency room, something like 96 times. And that's not even counting this other hospital that doesn't keep track of that. So it's over a hundred likely in just in one year. 
from being out on the streets confused or drunk or both. Finally, we, my wife got custodianship over her along with her brother. They got, they both are taking care of her essentially. And that's a huge step, but the album is about, the album is, is about dealing with a, a person in the family that is battling addiction and, and mental health issues. So it was a big thing to tackle. And I thought writing about it, I wasn't sort of like, I have to write about this to, to sort of teach people something. It was just the only thing that was on my mind at all times. It's been a very uh, all encompassing. If either of you have ever dealt with something like that, it doesn't leave you. You know, you're always thinking about it. You're always on in your mind, even if you're not telling the outside world. So it was a record that became more of a story record to try to humanize it for people out there. And I think we've been shocked at how many people are dealing with that. It's an insane amount of people that deal with addiction that never really talk about it. Like I said, I watched it last night. It's intense and it really does, you know, it really does hit you. You know, I had almost like, um, I, I want to say butterflies for lack of a better word when, when you're watching it, because you can just imagine what those people are going through in some of the scenes, especially where the, the wife runs away from the car after, you know, they get in an accident. That's a pretty intense scene there that, you know, that was on her mind. But the question I want to ask you is the, you know, Wesley's opinion is I think alcohol and, you know, I've had some conversations about this in the military, a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of suicide. There's a lot of depression coming back from deployments and a lot of people turn to alcohol and it just doesn't seem to get the, I don't want to say notoriety, but it's still almost like in the United States, it's glorified, it's socialized. I quit drinking for a year and I can't tell you how many people gave me looks like, why don't you drink? Do you have a problem? And it's like, no, I just wanted to get healthy. I wanted to see if I could do it. And I found myself having to explain why I don't, why I'm not drinking for a year. And, and you would always get those such judgmental looks. And I feel like if I said, I know it's not on the same level, but if I said, I'm giving up anything else that could be construed as bad for you. You're not going to get that same argument. Why do people hold on to alcohol being a part of our, our lifestyle? Do you think? Yeah. I mean, my bandmate, Jer, he's been sober for five or six years. He gets the same stuff. You know, people are express the same thing to him and we'll be in an elevator and there's a, there's an alcohol ad and we'll get out of the hotel lobby. There's an alcohol ad. There, there, it's everywhere when you, when you're no longer drinking. You know what I mean? It, it starts to per. You see how permeated and accepted it is. I don't know. I mean, it's a confusing thing, right? Because if you break a bone, they can take an X-ray and say your bone's broken. There's nothing like that as far as determining whether someone's an alcoholic or has a problem like that. So I think it gets pushed off to like willpower. It's like, oh, you know what you need is more willpower. You need more discipline. You need to want it more, which. For some people, that has to be true. You know, some percentage of drinkers. I've seen it in my mother-in-law. There's a whole other population that it holds a completely different place in their life and a meaning and a dependency. To put it in perspective, she was drinking a gallon of Tito's a day, one whole gallon. That's not someone who's casually drinking. If she stopped drinking, she would die. You know, when she go to the hospital, they'd have to like wean her off. Because you would literally get the DTs and you could die. Very, it's it's a it's a highish like likelihood. So I don't know why it's treated that way. I just know my only theory is like if look at Oprah, she went up against like the cattle and like the beef industry and she got crushed. There's a lot of money in the beef industry and there's a ton of money in alcohol. 
So I think it becomes such a normal thing that you lose perspective on like, we're, we're now legalizing weed everywhere. There's less of the, you're not really a rebel if you're smoking weed anymore. It's just a thing like alcohol, but we realize that like alcohol is far more destructive, <laughs> like on a, on a mass scale, but we treated marijuana like so many things could go wrong. And so I don't really understand it. That's my one theory is that, you know, there's a lot of money being made and, and it's a confusing thing. It's like smoking cigarettes or whatever else. Like there are people who could stop if they wanted to, but then I, I do wonder like, how do we help those that really can't help themselves? And what if it's emotionally connected? I don't know where it all comes from, but I was humbled because my mother-in-law would rather be homeless and all the danger and all the discomfort and everything trauma that comes with being homeless and be able to drink than be to be like sort of in an institution or to be in a rehab facility. That's how powerful the grip is on her. And that doesn't make sense to me for just looking at it from like, we're just these like almost like an animal. Why would it, why would they choose that breaking it down and taking all the emotion away? Why would she go towards that? It seems self-destructive. So I think it runs deep and yeah, it happens a lot getting off stage too. A lot of, a lot of artists, like you get a high, you get a contact high on stage and then you don't want to leave. You don't want to step off that. Like you want to stay up there. So what do you do? You just kind of like keep drinking or you keep taking pills or whatever you're doing. And it's tough because that adrenaline has to stop at some point and then the depression hits and then you want to do it again. So it's a bit of a mind fuck. One of my favorite movies is A River Runs Through It. And Tom Skerritt at the end of that has a really good quote that talks about the addiction and, and alcoholism in the case of the movie. And he says, kind of breaks it down. I'm, I'll get it somewhat wrong, but he basically says the parts that we don't know what parts to give to somebody who's who needs it. And then more than likely the parts that we have, they don't want. So it's tough to understand exactly how to help somebody like that. And somebody who's gone through that, what do you say to our listeners out there if they think their friend or family members might be going through something like that? It's not hopeless, right? Are there ways to help them? Are there things that you can do to help them get through it? Or I would say it's similar maybe to the relationship idea of there's no cookie cutter solution for you or for that family member. So we tried interventions. We tried Al-Anon for us, not for her mom. Her mom tried uh, AA. Then we tried multiple times putting her into rehab facilities, none of which worked. And it wasn't for lack of trying. So I think a lot of it is like, got to figure out your boundaries and what you're comfortable with, because this might be who this person is, or they might change, but you really don't have as much control over it as you think you do. And that's the humbling part. I thought going into it, well, if she can't see her grand grandchild or she can't see her own kids, she's going to quit. She's going to figure it out. She didn't. So I was humbled by my lack of awareness of how powerful the grip of it was over her and over so many other people. A huge part of it, I felt like, was figuring out almost like, what do you want out of this and how can we get there and what's possible? Because sometimes people are just going to do what they're going to do and you can't beat yourself up over what you didn't do or did. You have to also protect. It's like I used to be a lifeguard and it's like you can't save someone from drowning if you're drowning with them. It's like that's the tough part is knowing how to help if there is even an, a way you could. And then understanding that there's limits. So most of it, I would say, is like there are experts that can help you navigate this if you can find them. 
there are people that deal with this and can help you navigate it because you probably don't have all the tools you need to understand it. Like I didn't, it led to an album with no resolution, you know, in sight. I felt like another part of it that I would say as a piece of, I don't know if it's advice, but just, it is a taboo subject. So if you can talk about it more openly and we can all do that, I think the stigma starts to lessen and you can just, it can exist. It doesn't have to be this thing where no one admits that a family member has a problem. It's a big part of it is just making it less taboo. Thanks, Wesley. I really appreciate you sharing personal experiences and open up about that. I think that's a, a great answer um, is just to being able to talk about it and to say, hey, I have a problem and have people look at it like you said. It's not a negative thing. We all have people that have experienced uh, our family or friends. I think we all have people who, who battle addiction and uh, and alcoholism or opioids or whatever your your poison is. Yeah. Well, I just have a, a one more question. Actually, we we always end our or try to end our podcast with the same question. And you know, this seems like so much more than a job to you. It really, you're writing, you're storytelling, your music. You, it seems like you put uh, your soul into it. So, the question is, what's your message through your music? And more specifically, what's your why? Why do you do what you do? I feel like that's evolved it's, at times. So all I really wanted to do is play music. And I thought that that brought people together. I grew up going to like organized religion type churches, Catholic churches. And it just never gave me goosebumps or moved me the way that music could. I feel like music is like this primal thing in all of us. So the why for me is that we were somehow spreading joy or hope or awe or communion with other people in a way that almost nothing else can touch. You know what I mean? I, I've been to shows where people are opening up for you too and seeing people weeping, holding each other. You know, like this is a 30 year old album. They were playing the Joshua tree and there's people just feeling so much. And if an alien landed and you tried to explain to them what's happening, it's like, well, they're generating sound and that's making this person's eyes get wet. And like, it's like, it doesn't make any sense. Right. But like, for us, I feel like it, it's short circuits or even like shortcuts, some deep, deep, real emotion. So the why is that? And then there's a quote I heard, Sylvia Plath, she committed suicide and her husband wrote the son a letter. And in the letter, it's like this letter that got shared or it went sort of viral. This is from years ago, but I read it out loud to more than one person because it basically talks about at funerals is often the only time you ever really see somebody. Not the person who died, but the people at the funeral because they're crying and they're feeling real emotion and they're not ashamed for it. And he's like, there's some six, seven, eight year old inside of all of us that's in this suit of armor peering out through the slits. And when, when funerals happen, somehow that comes off and you just get to see the real person. And I feel like the why is like, how can I have more of those moments that don't require a death or a funeral? Like, I just want to feel awe and I want to feel love and I want to feel these things that. You could become so jaded or, you know, so in a way, like, I think I'm a considered a millennial. Uh, my generation is so jaded. I'm just not like that. I, I, or at least I don't want to be like that. I want to look at a mountain and go feel awe and go to a show and cry and feel like deep things. So for me, making music that does that to other people is a big part of it because I felt like that was a gift that was given to me by other artists. 
That's awesome, Wes. And we really appreciate you being authentic with us. I mean, this was a this is a powerful interview, I think. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. You guys are you guys are fun to talk to. And uh I'm glad my my brother-in-law and sister sort of connected these dots. They're great people, Wesley. And we again we we really appreciate you making the time. I have a final question. It's just for me, but yeah. I, I'm a huge Game of Thrones fan. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I actually contributed a chapter to a book called Winning Westeros, which was by the guy, uh, Max Brooks, who wrote World War Z. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of like how how the show helps explain modern warfare. Your song Nightshade, like <laughs> I've listened to it so many times. Like, what's it about? It starts out like bird's eye view, right? It's like some of us and then it's talking about all these kind of like archetypes of the different characters in the show. I felt like, but the main part of it is uh, Uncle Benjamin. The main part of it is him sort of like heroically in a rare moment in that show, like sort of somehow saving the day and giving up himself to like have the good guys keep going. You know what I mean? That's like the, the I want to say the second and third verse are, are about him. And actually our producer, Simon Felice, bumped into that actor that played him uh, in London like last year. And he was supposed to be in a video. Uh, I don't know if it was our video or a friend's video. And he's, he's a fan of Simon's and of ours and we're a fan of his. And so it kind of became full circle, but he was one of our favorite characters to reference. Even in the studio, we'd have these vision boards where I don't know if you guys do things like this, but you just, you have these things that you see around you. One of them I had was like the five stages of tribal leadership. I read in a Phil Jackson book. Another one was like literally just a picture of a white Buffalo. There's just all these scatterbrained things that inspire you and lend itself to whatever you're trying to do with that album. And so we were like, uncle Benjamin was like a big conversation point because he was just so pure in that way. That's awesome. Thanks Wesley. Yeah, yeah. Just I, I love that answer you gave on the wives. Uh, I can tell you, I I was listening to the vignettes on on the way home, and just I, mean, I know those were covers, but every song that came on brought a different memory and just got lost. And my hour commute seemed like ten minutes. So that's awesome. I, I think you have a real talent for doing that, and I appreciate what you're doing. I really appreciate you coming on the show today and and sharing everything with us. Yeah, no, thank you, Jacob. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, you guys are uh, easy to talk to. This this was fun. Thank you again to all our listeners for joining us on another episode of From the Green Notebook. Check us out at fromthegreennotebook.com, where you can download past episodes, read some of our previous blog posts, and sign up for our monthly reading list and Sunday email. If you enjoy the podcast so far, please subscribe and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. And follow us on Twitter at FTG Notebook, as well as Instagram and Facebook. You can find us by just searching From the Green Notebook. So this is Jacob Garonsky signing off. And hope you tune in to our next episode. I came from the mud. There's dirt on my hands. Strong like a tree. There's roots where I stand. Oh, I've been running from the law. Hope they won't shoot me down soon.